survey this book. It's not an easy book, um, and I'm going to do my best to explain it to you. Um, it merits a study all on its own. It's a very, very uh, powerful book. It's a tremendous book of prophecy, uh, but it's not the easiest of books. And uh, we're going to do our best with it just to give you an overview of it. And uh, I trust it'll be of help to you. So we're going to do this in two halves. I was hoping to do it all in one go, but when I started trying to do it in one go, I thought, this is going to be a disaster. So I'm going to give you it in two halves. And uh, you get the first half tonight, and uh, the second half, not next week, but the week after. All right? So that's the way we're going to work it. So let's look at Zechariah chapter 1. Begin reading in verses 1 through 6, and then we'll have a word of prayer and get into the study this evening. Zechariah chapter 1, verses 1 through 6. It says, In the eighth month, in the second year of Darius, came the word of the Lord unto Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, the son of Idu, the prophet, saying, The Lord hath been sore displeased with your fathers. Therefore say thou unto them, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, Turn ye unto me, saith the Lord of hosts, and I will turn unto you, saith the Lord of hosts. Be ye not as your fathers, unto whom the former prophets have cried, saying, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, Turn ye now from your evil ways and from your evil doings. But they did not hear, nor hearken unto me, saith the Lord. Your fathers, where are they? And the prophets, do they live forever? But my words and my statutes, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, did they not take hold of your fathers? And they returned and said, Like as the Lord of hosts thought to do unto us, according to our ways and according to our doings, so hath he dealt with us. Shall we pray? Father, we thank thee tonight for your word. We thank you tonight for this tremendous prophecy from the pen of the prophet Zechariah. And Lord, we know that it is a prophecy that in places is hard to be understood. But yet with all, we believe that we can understand it and should understand it. And Lord, that it has much to teach us, uh, both about your dealings with men and also concerning the future, and in particular, the future of the land of Israel. So Father, we pray tonight that you bless us as we look into thy word. We pray, Father, that you would enlighten us and that you would cause us to grow in the grace and in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we gather and in whose name we pray. Amen. So here we are, the book of Zechariah, tremendous book of prophecy. And anybody who thinks that Israel has no future has never read the book of Zechariah, full stop, okay? So if you get nothing else out of the study, that's what I want you to take home. This book is about Israel, God's plans for Israel, and the future of Israel. And it was written during a time of tremendous discouragement. Uh, As we looked at the book of Haggai, we discussed the background to that book and how that the people had come back under Ezra and Zerubbabel, uh, back uh, back to the land of Israel and to the city of Jerusalem from Babylon or Persia as it was by the stage, and uh, that they had begun uh, rebuilding the temple in Jerusalem, which had been destroyed by King Nebuchadnezzar. They laid the foundation, and uh, as as they laid that foundation... Uh, their enemies began to conspire against them. And they petitioned King Artaxerxes of Persia to remove planning permission, (coughs) which he did. 
And then the, uh, then the king uh, rescinded that removal. He said that they could continue with the rebuilding of the temple. And instead of going back to the work, they downed tools. And so you're into this period when they're kind of discouraged, they're kind of despondent, and uh, they're a little bit uh, just distracted by life, as we saw in Haggai. And so under the governorship of Zerubbabel and the ministry of the high priest Joshua, the people are encouraged through Zechariah the prophet uh, to finish the work that they began. Now this book is certainly, as I say, worthy of a study all by itself. Um, And I did toy with the idea of stopping at this point and taking you through all 14 chapters, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. But I decided against it, uh, because to be honest, I'm not sure that you're ready for it. So so I I took my foot off the pedal on that, and I thought, let's just do a survey of the book, and maybe at a later date, we'll come back and look at this book in more detail. Uh, So we're going to skim through it tonight and next Sunday. It's complex, uh, but it sets be, and it sets before us some of the most difficult passages to understand in all the Word of God. And the theologians have debated various aspects of this book. But its theme is set in the very first verse, where we read, The word of the Lord unto Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, the son of Ido, the prophet. Now, we're tempted, as with many of these verses of this kind, to push on into the heart of the book. They say, well, that's just a little introductory address, a salutation. Let's just move right into the heart of the book and get to the meat uh, of this particular uh, passage. But we've got to stop and tread a little bit more carefully here because each of those names in that first verse means something. Zechariah means the Lord remembers. Berechiah means the Lord blesses. And Ido means at the appointed time. So Zechariah came to Jerusalem and to the people of Judah in their darkness and in their despondency and their discouragement concerning the rebuilding of the temple. And he has this announcement that's wrapped up in his name and the names of his ancestors. And he says this, I've come to tell you the Lord remembers and at the appointed time he will bless. So that's the word of encouragement he brings right from the very first verse. Now, In chapters 1 to 6, you have eight visions, or ten visions, depending on how you want to to categorize them. But but normally you would say there's eight visions in chapters 1 to 6. And we're going to talk about those those visions tonight. Now, when we talk about a vision in the Old Testament, uh, we're not talking about a dream, okay? I want you to put that notion out of your head. Uh, When people in Old Testament times saw visions... Very often they saw them in the middle of the day. A a picture was set before them and uh, God revealed something of himself to them. And so it was a miraculous thing. It was a supernatural thing. Um, You know, we uh, sometimes hear reference to the book of Proverbs 28 and 19, where there is no vision, the people perish. And that is often quoted or prayed in churches like ours uh, to, to suggest that if our church has no direction, if we have no goal, if we have no vision in that sense, our purposes will perish. 
But actually, when Solomon said that, he's not speaking about aspirations and goals and direction and so on. He's speaking about the word of God. He's saying where there is no vision, where God is not revealing himself, the people perish. And so one of the ways in which God revealed himself in ancient times was by means of vision. And we have these eight visions of Zechariah laid out for us in chapters 1 to 6. And they reveal God's judgment upon the nations, God's purging of Israel. And they focus upon God's spirit working with Zerubbabel and Joshua to complete the temple. So these six chapters speak of Israel's fortunes. Then you have chapter 7 and 8. Chapter 7 and 8 deals with Israel's fastings. And uh, what happened is, is that when the people went to Babylon, they introduced new fasts into their, into their calendar, into their religious calendar. And God challenges the purposes of these fasts. And more, imper- more, more importantly, he challenges the spirit uh, of them. And then in chapters 9 to 14, we find two uh, oracles. So those oracles deal with Israel's future. So chapters 1 to 6 deal with Israel's fortunes, chapters 7 and 8, Israel's fastings, and chapters 9 to 14, Israel's future. Two oracles. The first oracle anticipates the Lord Jesus as the good shepherd. It portrays his rejection and also presents us with the acceptance of the Antichrist as the good shepherd of Israel. And then the second oracle looks forward to the day of the Lord when their enemies will be finally destroyed. The nation is delivered. The Davidic line is reinstated under the rule of Christ and his kingdom is inaugurated. Now I'm going to do something tonight that I very rarely do and that is I'm going to use somebody else's outline. Okay? Uh, Normally I outline, do my own outlines, but I, I come across this outline in my studies some time back, and it is by far, I think, the best and the most succinct on this particular book. And so I confess that I am stealing the outline of Charles Feinberg. Now, let me say this to you. If you ever see a book by Charles Feinberg, buy it. Okay? Buy it. Charles Feinberg is one of the greatest commentators on Bible prophecy that you'll ever come across. So if you don't have a book by Charles Feinberg in your library, well, you need to get one, okay? <laughs> He's dead, so I'm not like, uh, it's not like I'm, I'm getting commissioned for this, okay? I'm just telling you it's an excellent commentary, and this book in particular is an excellent book. So here's how he presents the outline of the book. He sees in chapter 1, the Lord Jesus is the writing one. Chapter 2, he's the measuring one. Chapter 3, the cleansing one. Chapter 4, the empowering one. Chapter 5, the judging one. Chapter 6, the crowned one. Chapter 7, the rebuking one. Chapter 8, the restoring one. Chapter 9, the kingly one. Chapter 10, the blessing one. Chapter 11 is the shepherding one. Chapter 12 is the returning one. Chapter 13 is the smitten one. And chapter 14 as the reigning one. Now we're going to just look at the first six of those uh, tonight. And again, we're just 
skimming the surface here. Uh, we're not getting into a lot of detail. We get into a little bit of detail here and there, but not a lot of detail uh, tonight. And so I want to begin here in chapter 1, and we want to think about the Lord as the writing one, as the writing one. Let's look in verses uh, 7 uh, to 11, of which the key verse is verse 8. I saw by night, and behold, a man riding upon a red horse. Let's read those verses. Verse 7 uh, to uh, 11. Upon the four and twentieth day of the eleventh day, which is the month Sabbath, in the second year of Darius, came the word of the Lord unto Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, the son of Ido, the prophet, saying, I saw by night, and behold, a man riding upon a red horse. And he stood among the myrtle trees that were in the bottom, and behind him were their red horses speckled and white. Then said I, O my Lord, what are these? And the angel that talked with me said unto me, I will show thee what these be. And the man that stood among the myrtle trees answered and said, These are they whom the Lord hath sent to walk to and fro through the earth. And they answered the angel of the Lord that stood among the myrtle trees and said, We have walked to and fro through the earth, and behold, all the earth sitteth still and is at rest. Now, without getting into a great deal of of detail, uh, understand that trees in Scripture often represent kingdoms and nations. And you find that in the other prophets. Ezekiel and Daniel both reference trees as nations and as kingdoms. But whereas in the book of Daniel and Ezekiel, Trees are seen as mighty kingdoms, powerful nations. The trees of Zechariah's prophecy are the lowly and fragrant myrtle trees. And uh, they are basically what we know as the, the laurel. And so this tree is a symbol of the nation of Israel. Uh, if you look in Isaiah chapter 41 for a moment. Isaiah chapter 41. Isaiah chapter 41 and verse 19. It says, I will plant in the wilderness the cedar, the shita tree, and the myrtle, and the oil tree. And I will set in the desert the fir tree and the pine and the box tree uh, together. And then chapter 55 of, uh, of uh, Isaiah and verse 13. It says, instead uh, of the thorn shall come up the fir tree, instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle tree, and it shall be to the Lord for a name, for an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. So myrtle trees were used alongside palm trees uh, in the Feast of Tabernacles. They're, uh, they're part of that celebration when the Jews make those little booths that they make out of branches. They use both uh, both myrtle trees and palm trees. And so the myrtle tree really becomes associated uh, with Israel and in particular with God's blessing upon the Jewish people after their captivity had passed. Now, back to Zechariah. I want you to notice where these myrtle trees were located. They are described in verse 8 as being in the bottom. And that means in a dark and deep place. That's what it literally means in the Hebrew language, that they're in a dark and deep place. And that's where the nation had been, and that's where the nation of Israel was, as Zechariah wrote. Because even though they had been granted the opportunity and had even had subsidized the, the, uh, the rebuilding of the temple, they were doing so under the watch, uh, watchful eye and oversight of a Gentile king. In other words, 
the Persians had to approve of what they were doing or it couldn't be done. Hence their enemies appealed to the Persians and the Persians said no, it had to stop. But when the Persians said yes, they could begin rebuilding again. And so understand that all through their history, uh, from, uh, from, from the time of Nebuchadnezzar onward, all through their history, Gentiles have been in the driving seat of Israel's affairs. But here we see the Lord now comes, and he's represented in this picture as a, a horseman riding upon this horse, this red-colored horseman riding upon this horse in the midst of the myrtle trees. Now, here's what I want you to get tonight. The Lord is forever at the center of the nation of Israel. God is always at the center of the nation of Israel. Even now, as Israel has been thrown into crisis in the last few days, still the Lord is at the heart of that nation. He is central to their future. Look in Isaiah chapter 63, if you will. Isaiah chapter 63 and verse 9. Isaiah 63 and verse 9. It says, In all their affliction he was afflicted, and the angel of his presence saved them, Israel. In his love and in his pity he redeemed them, and he bare them and carried them all the days of old. Jeremiah chapter 30. Jeremiah chapter 30, verse 11. Look what the Lord says to them. For I am with thee, saith the Lord, to save thee. Though I make a full end of all nations, whether I have scattered thee, yet will I not make a full end of thee. But I will correct thee in measure, and will not leave thee altogether unpunished. God says, I'm prepared to wipe out other nations, but I will not wipe out Israel. You see, Israel's the apple of his eye. Look back in Leviticus chapter 26. All the way back to the Pentateuch, to the first five books of your Bible, Leviticus chapter 26, the third book, verse 44. It says, And yet for all that, when they be in the land of their enemies, I will not cast them away, neither will I abhor them to destroy them utterly, and to break my covenant with them, for I am the Lord their God. Now remember, they have a covenant that dates back to Abraham and promises them a seed and promises them a land and promises them that there'll be a blessing to the world. And God says, I'm going to honor that covenant. It's a unilateral covenant. Uh, God made it unilaterally. He didn't engage Abraham in the agreement of the covenant. Abraham was put to sleep and God ratified the covenant. So on the basis of that covenant, the Lord comes to them now when they're at the bottom, when they're in the darkness and when they're in despair. And he says, I want you to know that I am in the midst of you. I'm in the middle of the myrtle trees. And he will deal with their enemies in due course. Now, if trees speak about kingdoms and nations, horses speak about God's dealings with governments of the earth. And the colors of these horses that are mentioned in the opening chapter of Zechariah are significant. You have a red horse, a white horse, 
and a speckled horse. The red horse speaks of judgment, of blood, and of vengeance. The white horse speaks of victory and glory. And the speckled horse, both red and white, mingles those two ideas and gives the idea of both judgment and glory. There's a double purpose here in God's presence at the heart of the nation. Now, in verse 12 of chapter 1 of Zechariah, a question is asked of the Lord. How long wilt thou not have mercy on Jerusalem and on the cities of Judah, against whom thou hast indignation these threescore and ten years? Remember, threescore and ten is seventy. They went into Babylon and were held captive there for seventy years. Uh, And so they asked this question. They said, well, how long are we going to suffer? Uh, How long are we going to be punished for? Uh, How long, Lord, are you going to set your face against us? And the reply is one of the uh, is one of comfort, and six great truths are returned in answer. Notice in verse fourteen, uh, God tells them that He loves them. So the angel that communed with me said unto me, "Cry thy saying, Thus saith the Lord of hosts." I am jealous for Jerusalem and for Zion with a great jealousy. Jealousy is an emotion rooted in love. You're only jealous of your wife if you love her. You're only jealous about your girlfriend if you love her. If you don't care about her, you're never going to experience jealousy. You'll be rather glad that somebody took her off your hands. Uh, But if you love her, you're going to be very protective of her. And so the Lord loves Israel. Then he's angry with the Gentile nations. Notice verse 15. And I am very displeased with the heathen that are at ease. So as this uh, writer goes through the middle of the myrtle trees, he discovers the Gentile nations are at ease. They're at rest. And uh, so God says, I'm angry with them, uh, for I was but a little displeased. And they helped forward the affliction. In other words, God says, I intended to use them to chastise my people, but they went beyond the boundaries of that chastisement and they began to relish the job a little bit too much. You know, it may well be that God has used Hamas and Hezbollah to chastise the Jewish people in Israel, but I think we'd all agree that on Saturday they went well beyond the boundaries of what was acceptable, well beyond them. And now I think they're going to reap what they've sown. And if you've already seen the pictures from the Gaza city, uh, Israel is turning that city into dust. And I believe that the Lord is behind them in that. So, you know, here is God. He's angry with these Gentile nations who've gone beyond the limit of chastisement. And then he says his presence will yet be experienced in this city. Look in verse 16. Therefore, thus saith the Lord, I am returned to Jerusalem with mercies. And in verse 16 again, he tells them the temple will be rebuilt. My house shall be built in it. In Jerusalem, saith the Lord of hosts, and the line shall be stretched forth upon Jerusalem. And then he tells them that he will claim not just Jerusalem, but all the cities of Israel. In verse 17. Thus cry yet, saying, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, My cities throughout prosperity shall yet be spared abroad. And then finally in verse 17, he says that he will choose Jerusalem as his capital. The Lord shall yet comfort Zion and shall yet choose Jerusalem. 
Now, these are powerful words, especially in the light of events in this last few days, because it's telling us that God has a special interest in the land of Israel and a particular care for the city of Jerusalem. In fact, his name is written upon that city. And so those who would seek to harm it, and those who would seek to drive the Jews, as they would say, from the river to the sea, are really at a battle with God. And they won't win, and they can't win, and there is no possibility of them winning. So that's the first chapter, essentially, of Zechariah. Christ is seen as the writing one. Then we come to the second chapter, and I've got the wrong title up there, but that should say the measuring one. And it says, And I lifted up mine eyes again in verses 1 and 2, and looked, and behold, a man with a measuring line in his hand. Then said I, Whither goest thou? And he said unto me, To measure Jerusalem, to see what's the breadth thereof, and what is the length uh, thereof. Now the man with the measuring line in his hand is the Lord Jesus Christ in pre-incarnate form. And when a person measures something up, it intimates ownership. You know, we've just had the van den Herx at our home for the last week. And we said to them first day, make yourselves at home. You, you want to make yourself a sandwich? Make yourself a sandwich. You want a piece of fruit? Have a piece of fruit. You know, you want to go and lie down for a while? Go lie down for a while. Do whatever you want to do. But imagine if I came in one day and there was Pastor Jonathan with a tape measure. And he's measuring my windows. And I says to him, Jonathan, what are you doing? Oh, he says, I don't like these curtains. I'm going to get new curtains here. I'm going to change these curtains. Well, you see, he doesn't have the right to do that. Because the person who's measuring in that way is the owner. And someone who's a visitor, someone who's just there as a guest, has no right to measure your property. Well, here's the Lord, and he's going out to measure Jerusalem. And he's telling people, this city is my city. This capital is my capital. And this chapter is about God's ownership of the land and its capital. Look at verse 10. He says to them, Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for lo, I come and I will dwell in the midst of thee, saith the Lord, and many nations shall be joined to the Lord in that day and shall be my people, and I will dwell in the midst of thee. He says there's many nations that will happily rejoice at my coming, But I'm concerned about you. I'm going to dwell in the midst of thee. And thou shalt know that the Lord of hosts has sent me unto thee. And the Lord shall inherit Judah, his portion in the holy land, and shall choose Jerusalem again. Be silent, O all you flesh, before the Lord, for for he is raised up out of his holy habitation. Do you know, this is the only time in the Bible that Israel is referred to as a holy land. It's the holy land. People say, I'm going on a tour of the Holy Land. Bobby's just back from Israel. Praise God. I'm glad he's back. But, you know, he might have said, the folks or people in his tour party, his group might have said, well, we're going to the Holy Land. Well, look at it. It's not a Holy Land. It's a land that's rife with war and violence and, and actually sin. 
You know, Tel Aviv is a, is a sinful city. It's, a, it's like any modern Western city. It's like San Francisco or New York or London. Uh, they have all the same things that modern Western cities have. They celebrate Pride Month, just like cities in Britain and Europe and, and elsewhere do. They, they, they have all the same indulgences, all the same wickedness that you see around us in our city. It's not a holy land. Jerusalem is not a holy city. But it will be a holy land and it will be a holy city when the Lord takes occupancy of it. Now, notice in verse 10, he tells them to sing and rejoice. They couldn't sing and rejoice when they were in Babylon. Remember, they said, how can we sing the Lord's song in a strange land? They said, we, couldn't, we can't sing there. And they are not singing and rejoicing at the time of the writing of this book. They're in the bottom place. They're, at the, they're in the bottom. They're in the darkness. They're in despair. But here the Lord says, there's coming a time when I'm going to inhabit the land of city, the land of, the, of Israel, and I'm going to dwell in the city of Jerusalem, and you'll be able to sing and rejoice at my presence. Now all of this is yet future. We know this because, first of all, the glory of the Lord departed from Israel during the time of Ezekiel, whilst the people were actually being, uh, being uh, about to be transported into Babylon. Uh, and he left the land, and he never returned uh, to the Holy of Holies. He left the temple. He uh, went out of, over his threshold, down the Kidron Valley, up the Mount of Olives, and, uh, and headed up back into heaven. And so his presence was never again seen in the temple at Jerusalem. It wasn't even there during the time of Christ. There was no presence of, of God in the temple during the time of Christ. But the Lord will dwell there again. Look at Ezekiel chapter 48. Ezekiel chapter 48 and verse 35. And here's the very last verse of the book of Ezekiel. Now, I'll tell you what we are going to do in the new year, Lord willing, if the rapture hasn't happened first. And that might well be. In the new year, in the Lord willing, I'm going to take you through Ezekiel chapters 40 to 48. And we're going to look at de in detail at the millennial temple. And we're going to see how it's laid out and what's going to happen there and so on. It's a tremendous study. Honestly, it'll blow your mind. It'll blow your... Block out next year, Wednesdays. You want to be here. This will absolutely blow your mind. But the very last statement that is made in that tract of Scripture concerning the Millennial Temple and all that surrounds it is this. And it was round about 18,000 measures. And the name of the city, that is the city of Jerusalem, from that day shall be Jehovah Shammah. The Lord is there. And so Israel, Jerusalem, and the temple all have a future in the plan of God. All right, next section. Chapter 3, we're looking at the cleansing one. The cleansing one. Here's the key verse. Verse 4, it says, He answered and spake unto those that stood before him, saying, Take away the filthy garments from him. And unto him, unto Joshua, he said, Behold, I have caused thine iniquity to pass from thee, and I will clothe thee with a change of raiment. So in this chapter, chapter uh, four of Zechariah, chapter three of Zechariah, sorry, 
uh, we have the cleansing of Joshua the high priest. Let's look at verses 1 through 4 in context. It says, And he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to resist him. And the Lord said unto Satan, The Lord rebuke thee, O Satan. Even the Lord that hath chosen Jerusalem rebuke thee. Is not this a brand plucked out of the fire? Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and stood before the angel. And he answered and spake unto those that stood before him, saying, Take away the filthy garments from him. And unto him he said, Behold, I have caused thine iniquity to pass from thee, and I will clothe thee with a change of raiment. Now in this chapter we're introduced to Joshua the high priest. And Joshua was among those who returned to Judah following the exile under the governorship of Zerubbabel. And he's seen as standing before the angel of the Lord. That's what we read there in verse 1. He's standing before the angel of the Lord. Now he's not casually standing before the angel of the Lord. He is formally standing before the angel of the Lord. He is ministering in the temple in the presence of the Lord. And as he does so, you'll see that uh, he is accompanied by the devil. It says, and Satan was standing at his right hand to resist him. That's what it says there in verse 1. Now, anytime, get this, friends, anytime you do anything for the Lord, you mark it down, the devil is going to make his presence felt. He's going to make, he's not going to be happy. Do you think the devil is happy that six people were baptized here on Sunday night? Of course he isn't happy. Do you think he's happy that Davy and Sinead got saved? Of course he's not happy. He's furious. You know what? The matter he is, the more I like it. Because my job is not to appease the devil. And your job is not to appease the devil. Our job is to do battle with him. And so here we see this man, he's going about his business. He's offering his incense unto the Lord and he's doing whatever was part and partial of his role as high priest and Satan is at his right hand. Now that intimates, the fact that Satan is at, his, at, at Joshua's right hand intimates that he is acting in the role of a prosecuting lawyer. In other words, he's coming to accuse him of something. And essentially he accuses him of being unfit, unworthy to be a high priest. He shouldn't have this office. Look at him. Verse 3 says, Joshua is clothed with filthy garments. The Bible uses the strongest possible terms here in the Hebrew. It suggests that here he stood in his high priestly robes and he was covered in human excrement. And to make matters worse, He's standing before the angel of the Lord. So there's a contrast there between the holiness of God and the filthiness of man. And as he's doing this, Joshua is representative of the nation of Israel. Now what happens next in verse 4 is what we call imputation. That's the theological term. Now the Lord says, take away the filthy garments, take away his filthy clothes from him, and, and behold, I have caused thine iniquity to pass from thee, and I will clothe thee with a change of raiment. Change of clothes. Friends, that's, that's what happens to a Christian. That's what happens to us at the point of salvation. God takes our filthiness, and he puts it on Christ. And Christ bears our filthiness upon the cross. And in exchange, God gives us his righteousness. He takes our filthy, excrement-stained 
clothing and he puts all of that abhorrent clothing upon Christ and he punishes him there for our filthiness and sin and in return he gives us the pure white garment of salvation. And God is going to do this for Israel. And so as Zechariah observes this transformation from filthiness to holiness, notice what he does in verse 5. He says, let them set a fair mitre upon his head. That's a hat. In other words, he says, let's get this job finished. Let's, let's complete the job. Let the restoration be complete. And God, always ready to answer our prayers that are in keeping with his will, does just that. A fair mitre is placed upon his head, and, uh, it, and, he is, and his, and his uh, garments are made complete, and there's a golden plate upon the head of the garment which reads, Holiness to the Lord. Let's look at verses 8 through 10 then very quickly. Hear now, O Joshua, the high priest, I and thy fellows that sit before thee, for there men wondered at. For behold, I will bring forth my servant, the branch. That's a title for Christ. For behold, the stone that I have laid before Joshua. Upon one stone shall be seven eyes, or seven uh, fountains. Behold, I will engrave the graving thereof, saith the Lord of hosts. I will remove the iniquity of that land in one day. In that day, saith the Lord of hosts, shall ye call every man his neighbor under the vine and under the fig tree. So here we have a reference to Jesus as the branch. And as a stone with seven eyes, or if you like, seven fountains engraved upon it. And remember, this vision is about the cleansing of the nation. It's not about the cleansing of Joshua personally. It's about the cleansing of the nation of Israel. And so it's telling us that there's coming a day when the stone... Now, you have to know a little bit about Bible prophecy here. Daniel chapter 2, verse 44. There's a stone that is made without hands that comes and hits the feet uh, of the, uh, of the uh, image that Nebuchadnezzar sees, which is a portrayal of the kingdoms of men, and the stone that is made without hands crushes the base of that image, and the whole thing falls. And it's telling us that when Christ comes, man's kingdom is done, and Christ's kingdom begins. Now we find out that this stone not only is a stone of judgment, but it's a stone of cleansing. In that moment, God will save Israel from her enemies. He will destroy the kingdoms of this world. But he will also simultaneously provide a fountain of cleansing whereby the nation is purged and purified. Right. I told you it was a complicated book, didn't I? Do you believe me? <laughs> it's not an easy book. Chapter 4, verse 1. We now see... The empowering one. The Lord is the empowering one. Cross the page. Chapter 4, verse 1. And the angel that talked with me came again and, and waked me as a man that is wakened out of his sleep. And he said, What seest thou? And I said, I have looked to behold a candlestick all of gold and a bowl upon the top of it and his seven lamps thereon and seven pipes to the seven lamps which are upon the top thereof and two olive trees by it, one upon the right side of the bowl, the other upon the left side thereof. So I answered and spake to the angel that talked with me, saying, What are these, my Lord? Then the angel that talked with me answered and said unto me, Knowest thou not what these be? And I said, No, my Lord. And he answered and spake unto me, saying, This is the word of the Lord on the Cherubimble, saying, Not by might, nor by power, not but by my spirit, saith the Lord of hosts. Who art thou, O great mountain, before Cherubimble, thou shalt become a plain, and he shall bring forth the headstone thereof with shoutings, cryings, 
grace, grace unto it. Now, this chapter tells us how that the Lord is going to be the ultimate supply for the nation of Israel, that they will assume their God-ordained rule, roles sorry, as a light to the world. Now, let's remind ourselves what's going on here. Let's do the background again. After the initial return of the exiled Jews from Babylon, they began the task of rebuilding the temple, and they did so with vigor. But their enemies opposed them. And so King Artaxerxes put a stop to the rebuilding process, and they downed tools. King Artaxerxes then changed his mind and said they could continue with the rebuilding, but they didn't pick up their tools. They just let things sit as they were. Then came Haggai, whom we read of last time, and through his word, God reignites their enthusiasm for the rebuilding of the temple, and they begin to complete the job. But as they begin, remember the older people wept and the younger people cheered. So the older people were critical of this new temple. It didn't match the old temple. Uh, it wasn't nearly as impressive. It didn't have the gold and the silver and all the precious metals and, and things that were in Solomon's temple. Uh, and it looked rather basic and rather functional. Uh, and they just were unimpressed and underwhelmed. And so the people became discouraged, and again they downed tools. Now we can imagine Zerubbabel's frustration with this. He's been charged with building, rebuilding this temple. And the people keep putting down their tools. And so the Lord comes and he gives Zechariah gives this fresh vision, picturing God's perpetual and everlasting power, strength, and sustenance. So Zechariah is told if he will rely upon and look to the Spirit of God, he will receive the continual flow of God's grace. That's why there are pipes of oil coming into those lamps. Those lamps never go out. They're burning continually. And he is going to empower him to overcome the obstacles. Verse 6, the key verse, Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord of hosts. Not by might. That is not by the hand of many, not by physical power. That's by human ability or man's wealth. Let me tell you something. Our church is not going to be built by human ability. It's not going to be built by, uh, by our physical uh, involvement. It's not going to be built by our wealth, by our riches. It has to be built by the Spirit of God or not. Not at all. Not by might. Not by power. That's not on your own. Not with your own personal resources, be they physical or mental or something else. But by my spirit, saith the Lord of hosts. What a, what a wonderful word this is. But now for the best bit, verse 7. He says, Who art thou, O great mountain? You've got to love this. God sees this man and he's totally deflated. He's totally down. He's defeated. He's ready to pack it all in because, you know, there are very few are responding to his call and you have all these critics carping on the, on the sidelines and there's always critics carping on the sidelines. But the Lord says, Look, I know in your mind the job I have given you seems insurmountable. It seems like a mountain to you. But who art thou, O mountain? Who are you before the Lord? He says, I will make you like a plain. Thou shalt become a plain. Instead of a, of a great big uh, mountain that has to be climbed, he says, I'm going to make it a, a flat plateau that you can walk easily along. Some of you have been watching my little videos on, Sunday, on, the, on the mornings. And somebody commented and said, you're always out of breath. Well, there's a good reason for that. <laughs> reason number one, I've got to go uphill before I make those, because if I do it on the main road, you can't hear for the traffic going past. So I've got to go up a hill 
before I make them usually. And secondly, I've got a chest infection. <laughs> and so you can hear the wheeziness. Well, you know, here was Zerubbabel, and he sees this mountain. He says, I, I can't do this. I can't claim this. This is too big a task for me. And God says, you don't worry about that. I'm going to make this path straight for you. And he says, the great mountain is going to be leveled. He says, you've started this thing, and by grace, you'll finish it. Notice what he says at the end. They'll cry, grace, grace unto it. What a word of encouragement to this, uh, to this governor. But I want you to just glance your eye down in verse 10. Because remember, their complaint was this new temple didn't compare to the old. It wasn't as large. It wasn't as expansive. It wasn't as expensive. They didn't have the kind of money that Solomon had to pour into it. And notice what God says to them. For who hath despised the day of small things? Can I tell you something? God always uses small things to accomplish great things. God always uses small. You know, you think about Moses' rod. It's just a little thing, just a small thing, just a stick. But God used it to split the Red Sea. You think about a jawbone of an ass, not a particularly large bone. But in the hand of Samson, it was used to slaughter a thousand Philistines. You think about a little meal and a little oil. That's all that Elijah had to work with. But on that little, uh, little supply, uh, he was able to provide for the woman of Sarephah. Five smooth stones are, are not really worthy missiles in the face of a gigantic warrior. But that's what David had when he faced down Goliath. A cloud the size of a man's hand is hardly going to excite the Met Office. But I'll tell you what. During a time of drought, that cloud proved to be more than enough. A small boy's lunch, five loaves and two fishes, will hardly feed a great multitude. And yet that's what Jesus did with that little boy's lunch. And he, prayed, and he fed 5,000 people. You see, here's the thing I want you to see, friends. It's the little things that God uses. A timely smile, a friendly handshake, the giving of a gospel tract, a promise to pray, a simple hug, the sending of a card. These are small things, but very often God uses them to accomplish great things. And so he comes to Zerubbabel, who's really looking at his temple that he's building and thinking it's not up to the job. And he says to him, who's despised the dead small things? He says, you stop fretting about the size of your temple. This is precisely what Zerubbabel needed to hear. In the chapter 5, you have the judging one. I'm not going to even go into chapter 5. <laughs> and the reason I'm not going to go into chapter 5, if I go into chapter 5, we'll be here for a good hour or more. All right, But what happens in chapter 5, you say, is, well, here's basically what happens. Uh, God deals with sin in Israel. He deals with the sinner, and he deals with the sin. And you have a flying roll, or sorry, a flying uh, scroll, and then you have a flying bowl. There's two flying things in that chapter. I preached on it once in a prophetic meeting, and I said, uh, I, I, I entitled the message, Identified Flying Objects. Flying roll and a flying scroll, a flying, flying scroll and a flying bowl. And I started this message and I said, I would imagine that nobody here has ever seen a UFO. Whereupon a woman put her hand up at the back and shouted, I have. And I thought, oh no, it would have to happen in my sermon, wouldn't it? And then she proceeded to tell us how she was abducted by aliens. 
She was nearly abducted by a Baptist pastor. I felt like abducting her and taking her out the back of the church and slapping her for being a silly woman. But nevertheless, <laughs> I can only happen to make you But here's what God does. He symbolically takes sin. And you see how it's portrayed there with a woman in an ephah. And he puts the lid, a great big lid, on the, on the top of this ephah. And he has two angels carry it. And they set it down in the land of Babylon ceremonially as a reminder that sin has been removed from the land. Now, that's all I'm going to say about that chapter. Chapter 6, the crowned one. Let's read chapter 6, verses 9 through 15, and this is us done. The word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Take of them of the captivity, even of Heldiah, of Tobijah, and of Judiah, which are come from Babylon, and come thou the same day, and go into the house of Josiah, the son of Sephaniah. Then take silver and gold and make crowns and set them upon the head of Joshua, the son of Josedek, the high priest, and speak unto him, saying, Thus speaketh the Lord of hosts, saying, Behold the man whose name is the branch. He shall grow up out of this place, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. Even he shall build the temple of the Lord, and he shall bear the glory, and shall sit and rule upon his throne. And he shall be a priest upon his throne, and the counsel of peace shall be between them both. And the crown shall be to Helam and to Bajah and to Jediah and to Hen the son of Sephaniah for memorial in the temple of the Lord. And they that are far off shall come and build in the temple of the Lord. And you shall know that the Lord of hosts hath sent me unto you. And this shall come to pass if ye will diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God. So what happens in this chapter, the early part of that chapter, is that judgment having begun on the house of God, God continues to judge then the Gentile nations. You have a vision of four chariots which speak about that. But I want to focus on this latter half of the chapter, which deals with Christ as the crowned one. And you notice in verse 11, that key uh, verse. This is one of the, great, the greatest messianic scriptures in all of the Old Testament. Zechariah told to meet with three men to receive their offerings of silver and gold, and from those offerings to make crowns. Now, the unusual thing to he- here to note is who is being crowned. It's Joshua the high priest. Why is that important to note? Because, friends, uh, you cannot, in ancient Israel, it was against the law uh, to combine the office of priest and king. The high priest could never be a king, and a king could never be a high priest. That's simply how it was. In fact, you have the example of King, King uh, of, of Uzzah, or Uzziah, who goes into the temple in order to offer incense. He's a king. He gets above his post. He gets above his station. He thinks, well, I can do whatever I want. I'm the king of this country. And he goes into the, into the temple, into the holy place, and 80 priests come, and they take him by the scruff, and they throw him out. Imagine doing that with a king. You can imagine King Charles coming in here and saying, I'm going to preach tonight. And all the deacons get up. (laughs) Unlikely as this is. (laughs) And take them by the scruff and throw them out on the street there and and points past and say, listen, you might be able to do what you want to do in Buckingham Palace, but not in here. Thank you, brother. (laughs) Well, that's what happened with King Uzziah. Because he had no business 
performing the office of the priest. So here you have this unusual vision in which a high priest is crowned. But notice the name of the high priest. The, crown is, the crowns are placed upon the head of Joshua. Who is Joshua? That's the Hebrew name for Jesus. The Old Testament equivalent of the New Testament Jesus. Joshua, Yeshua. And so you have the silver and gold crowns being placed upon the head of Yeshua. It's a type. It's a picture. It's a portrayal of the crowning of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is first of all our great high priest, but is to be crowned one day as King of kings and Lord of lords, and he's going to combine the offices of priest and king into one personage. Now, Every word of verses 12 and 13 is worthy of consideration. Notice what it says. Thus speaketh the Lord of hosts, saying, Behold the man whose name is the branch. We know already that's a title of Christ. And he shall grow up out of this place, out of, uh, out of Jerusalem, out of, uh, out of uh, Israel. That's a reference to his roots, his stock. He'll be off the tribe of Judah. And he shall build the temple of the Lord. Even he shall build the temple of the Lord. Now, this was an encouragement, of course, to those who were building the temple of the Lord in Zechariah's time. But it's also prophetically pointing toward a future temple which will stand as the centerpiece of the millennial kingdom. And it says, and he shall bear the glory. Let me stop for a moment. Every time I take a tour to Israel, any time I've taken a tour to Israel, we do our best to visit the Temple Institute. The Temple Institute has got to be visited when you're in Israel. The Temple Institute in Jerusalem is where the Jews are preparing to build the next temple. They've got everything ready. Everything's there. The priestly garments are there. The priesthood is trained. Um, they have all of the, the various uh, pieces of furniture from the altar to the laver to the uh, the altar of incense to uh, the table of showbread, the menorah, the Ark of the Covenant. They say they know where it is. They're, they're ready to go with this thing. You've got to see it to believe it. And I went to see this one time. Went to went to the Temple Institute with a with a party, and there was a young Jewish girl there, and she was she was trying to encourage us to to be you know excited about the building of the temple. You see, for the Jews, the building of the temple is critical to the coming of the Messiah. That's why the, the disciples of the Lord were perturbed when he said that not one stone would remain upon the temple. They thought, well, if that's the case, we can't have the Messiah. You can't, no temple, no Messiah. So this young woman is working for the Temple Institute, and she's very excited about the building of the temple. And she gets all of us, who is a group of Gentiles, there wasn't a Jew among us, and she gets us to chant, we're going to build the temple, we're going to build the temple. And so all these Gentiles are shouting, we're going to build the temple. And I'm thinking to myself, no, we're not. <laughs> what's he talking, what's, what's going on here? So they had a question and answer time. Is there any questions? And I put up my hand. I said, I've, I've got a weak question. She says, what's your question? I says, well, the book of Zechariah tells me that the branch, the Lord of hosts, that he will build the temple of the Lord, even he shall build the temple of the Lord, and he shall bear the glory. Do you know what her answer was? 
She says, well, you have your religion and I have mine. And I said to her, but Zechariah is your prophet. <laughs> He's an Old Testament prophet. He's a Jewish prophet. He's not a Christian apostle. And she said, well, let's just agree to disagree. And it seemed to me that she didn't even know who Zechariah was. Now, remarkably, the tomb of Zechariah sits just outside the eastern wall in Jerusalem. You pass by it. You drive beneath the eastern wall. And so I, I, I raised this with somebody who was involved in Jewish evangelism. I said, you know, this young woman looked at me like she'd never heard of Zechariah in her life before. He said, it's very likely that she hadn't. Because all they study, largely, is the law. The first five books of their Bible and the rest of the Bible, the rest of the Old Testament is largely closed to them. Isn't that tragic? But here's the Lord coming, and he's going to build the temple. He's going to bear the glory. Look at Matthew chapter 25 for a moment. Matthew chapter 25. Notice what it says in verse 31. <coughs> Matthew chapter 25 and verse 31. It says, when the Son of Man shall come in his glory and all the holy angels with him, then shall he sit upon the throne of, what does it say? His glory. Now, right now, he's sitting upon his Father's throne, a bench throne shared by God the Son and God the Father in the heavenlies. But there's coming a day when a throne will be established in Jerusalem, in the temple, and Christ will sit upon his throne in the Holy of Holies, ruling and reigning. Look at Jeremiah chapter 3 for a moment. Jeremiah chapter 3. Because what you have here is the king, a priest, and he is, uh, and he is ruling and reigning. Now, I should have said this before, I, before he went on. Uh, if, go to Jeremiah chapter 3 and then briefly come back to uh, Zechariah, if you will. Jeremiah chapter 3, and then if you'll go back and find Zechariah again, and I want you to see something there in Zechariah. Okay, let's go back to Zechariah, and I want you to see something in Zechariah. Chapter 6 and verse 13. Even he shall build the temple of the Lord, and he shall bear the glory, speaking of the Lord, and shall sit and rule upon his throne. Now, let's just stop there. And shall sit. Now, think about the, the furniture that was in the temple or the tabernacle. You came through the entrance to the uh, tabernacle or the temple. The first thing you met was the altar, uh, the altar of sacrifice, the great brazen altar. And then you move beyond that altar and you come to the laver where you washed your hands and your feet. And then you went into the holy place. And in the holy place, there are three items of furniture. There's the table of showbread. There's the menorah, the golden lampstand. And before you is the altar of incense. 
And then you had the veil that came down between the holy place and the holiest of holy of holies. And if you were to go through the, that particular veil, you go through that curtain, you'd find on the other side the Ark of the Covenant with its great big golden mercy seat, the lid on top upon which the presence of God dwelt. But here's the thing I want you to see. In all of those items of furniture, there is no seat. There's no seat. Nowhere to sit. A priest was forbidden to sit in that area. And yet it says of this priest that he shall sit and rule there. Now I look at Jeremiah chapter 3 and verse 6. Verse 16, sorry. And it shall come to pass when ye be multiplied and increased in the land in those days, saith the Lord. They shall say no more the ark of the covenant of the Lord, neither shall it come to mind. Neither shall they remember it, neither shall they visit it, neither shall that be done anymore. Now, what is the, what is the holy grail of archaeology? It's the ark of the covenant, isn't it? I mean, that's what the whole movie Raiders of the Lost Ark is about, isn't it? If you were an archaeologist and you found the ark of the covenant, let me tell you something, you'd be made for the rest of your life. You would never have to work another day in your life. But the Lord says there's coming a time when the Ark of the Covenant will be no more. Nobody's going to even think about it. Nobody's even going to remember it. Nobody's going to talk about it. Why? It says at that time, verse 17, they shall call Jerusalem, notice, the throne of the Lord. And all nations shall be gathered unto it, to the name of the Lord, to Jerusalem. Neither shall they walk any more after the imagination of their evil heart. Look at Ezekiel chapter 43. Remember, he shall sit and rule from there. We've read that there's a throne. We've read that it will sit where the Ark of the Covenant once sat. And we come to Ezekiel chapter 43, and we're into the millennial temple. And I want you to see what the scripture says in verse 4. And the glory of the Lord came into the house by the way of the gate, whose prospect is toward the east, the eastern gate. So the Spirit took me up and brought me into the inner court. And behold, the glory of the Lord filled the house, the temple, the holy of holies. And I heard him speaking unto me out of the house, and the man stood by me. And what did he say? He said unto me, Son of man, the place of my throne, the place of the soles of my feet, where I shall dwell in the midst of the children of Israel forever. And my name shall be till the house of Israel no more defile, neither they nor their kings by their whoredoms or by their carcasses or the kings in their high places. Don't ever tell me Israel has no future. Christ is coming to Jerusalem. He's going to sit. And the soles of his feet will rest upon the floor of the Holy of Holies. And his body will rest upon his throne in his kingdom. And that leads us to nicely to that next thought. He shall sit and rule upon his throne. He will, be, he will not be a constitutional monarch such as King Charles is. King Charles must dutifully read the program of government at the opening of Parliament each year. But the Lord Jesus isn't going to have to read anybody's program of government out. He will be an autocratic monarch. He's going to rule. And he will rule as an absolute sovereign 
over all the earth. He will rule with a rod of iron. And the Bible says, if you look in Zechariah, he shall be, verse 13, a priest upon his throne. Now that cannot refer to Joshua, the high priest, because it was forbidden to him to be a king. Nor does it refer to Serubabal, who was the governor, because he could never have been a priest. Rather, this is referring to one person and one person only, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is first of all our great high priest, and second of all, King of kings and Lord of lords. And notice it ends in verse 13 with the phrase, and the counsel of peace shall be between them both, between those two offices of priest and king. Friends, that is the first, essentially the first half of the book of Zechariah. You can see why I didn't take all night there, didn't do all 14 chapters in one night. That's the first half. Next time we gather, we'll do the second half. We'll do the second half. And the second half is tremendous. There are so many prophecies in the second half, it'll blow your mind. It's a good book, isn't it? Has your appetite been whetted to study it? Charles Feinberg. (laughs) Get Charles Feinberg's book if you want to study the book of Zechariah. Well, we'll leave it there for this evening and go to the Lord in prayer.